Listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to have you. If you're listening on 101.9 or on the Jerusalem Post, I'm excited to be with you and excited to bring you a great new guest on the show as we do every single week. Looking at the current affairs, the culture, the politics, what's going on in your Jewish world. And I'm excited that we have an international guest in studio today. Uh, he literally just popped in uh, for for a little bit of time, and, and we have him. Uh, he, his name is Gil Troy. Uh, you should know him if you are a regular reader of the Jerusalem Post. He has a column there. Uh, but he is a long-term academic, spent some time at Harvard, at McGill, now resides in Jerusalem, and is an expert in American history in uh, the history of American presidencies and uh, is a renowned thinker and writer on the issue of Zionism. Gil, welcome to the show. Nice to have you with us on Chai Great to be with you. Can I ask you, before we begin talking about some of the, the discussion points, I mean, academics, is that something that a good Jewish boy does in America these days or when you were around? <laughs> well, you know, it's, um, it's, it's not one of the most high pro- high, highest paying positions, but uh, there still is, look, at this. we are the people of the book. Uh, increasingly with the people of Facebook, but that's for the group therapy session afterwards. <laughs> uh, and there still is this connection to the text, to the word, to the idea. And I feel privileged that I'm able to every day wake up, set my own agenda, not really have bosses, and think for a living, and speak for a living, and teach for a living. And I do feel in many ways that I'm part of a tradition of Muhammads, um and Rebbe's that goes back uh, centuries. Now, you... Uh, as I said in the introduction, have written quite a lot about Zionism, uh, the idea of Zionism, some of the thinking. And I'm struck as I look at some of the history of Zionism I've studied myself that when the movement started, it actually had the backing of a lot of the intellectuals of the day. There was a lot of thinking people who believed that this was important, not just in the Jewish community, but around the world, who, who ended up making it a success. And I almost get the sense at the moment that as an idea from the intellectuals that it's, it's under siege. Uh, at the moment, and perhaps for a long time. But I'm interested in your thoughts uh, as someone who talks about Zionism and is in this thinking world, you know, where we perceive ourselves in that. It's a very interesting insight. So there are two parts to that. One is that indeed, when obviously the Zionist idea goes way back to Abraham and the nature of the Jewish connection to the land, the people, uh, and God. But if we talk about the modern Zionist movement, it emerges in an age of nationalism. And so back in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, nationalism was cool. Nationalism was actually the best vehicle for achieving individual fulfillment and also collective fulfillment. And so intellectuals embrace that idea. Today, especially in the universities, we're in a postmodernist world, which actually misses the essential lesson of nationalism and the essential key to democracy, which is we need to have national glues. We need to have collective glues. We need to be a little bit tribal that nationalism is a neutral tool. And so, indeed, Zionism, not just Israel for all its political issues, but Zionism itself has become politically incorrect because nationalism has become politically incorrect. But I say to my academic friends, what's America without nationalism? What's Canada without nationalism? What's democracy without nationalism? So that's one part of it. And the second part of it is, indeed, that, you know, if you think about it, 100 years ago, and even 70 years ago, when Israel was first established, Israel itself was fragile, the Zionist conversation was robust. It was intellectuals fighting, debating, arguing, who created the state and now have created the world's largest Jewish community, soon to be 50% of the Jewish community. 
But if then Israel was fragile and the Zionist conversation was robust, today Israel is robust, but the Zionist conversation has turned fragile. And that always kind of leads, particularly amongst Israelis, I have to say, outside of a very sort of niche set of thinkers, you say to an Israeli, eh, Zionism, it's for diaspora Jews, you know, what do we need it for? Uh, is there a need for us to keep reinscribing and rethinking about this idea of a Jewish state or the state for the Jews? Is it even necessary for us to keep having that conversation? It, it, it won. You're singing my song. I mean, there are those people who say Zionism ended in May 1948 when Israel began. But my understanding of nationalism, and especially Jewish nationalism, is that it's like a bird soaring. You have to keep flapping your wings. And we constantly have to keep recalibrating and figuring out who we are, what we are. And if Zionism, until 1948, was the movement to establish a state based on the fact that we're people with ties to a particular homeland. Now it's the movement to perfect the state. And I'm also pushing this notion from political Zionism to identity Zionism, that we're now not just asking the question of how do we establish a state, but what does that state do for me? How does it help give me inspiration? How does it help give me grounding? And uh, indeed, it's a problem, not just in the diaspora, but in Israel. And one of the things I'm trying to do is I just came out with this book in English called The Zionist Ideas, which is an update of a classic anthology from 1959. And the book hasn't yet been published in Hebrew. I'm hoping to get it translated. But this Sukkot, we're already trying to bring the Zionist conversation to Israelis in Sukkot, encouraging people to host what I'm calling Zionist salons in Israel, in the diaspora, conversations about what Israel means to me, what Zionism means to me, and do it in the old-fashioned way with texts. Read Achad Am. Read less well-known people like Beryl Katznelson. Read contemporary thinkers. Read Jonathan Sachs. Read Natan Transky. Read Elie Wiesel. Read Anne Royfi. Read uh, Henrietta Zold. Read great thinkers, Golda Meir, Menachem Begin, who help us think through what this Zionist idea can mean for us today in the 21st century in this constant process of recalibration, of redefinition. Because there is a sense amongst some Jewish thinkers that as Jews, we don't really have a political tradition per se, not in the same way that the Greeks have one or the Chinese have one, right? And and it is interesting that that there has been a bit of a resurgence of interest in some of these classic Zionist thinkers who themselves were thinking back to the Bible and taking the Tanakh as a, as a reference point and saying, well, hang on a minute, we have to sort of rethink where we're at and, and what we mean uh, because we're not completely sure ourselves. So again, there are two parts to this. One is indeed, look, we were traumatized by being in the diaspora for so many years. Uh, we were traumatized by being oppressed by anti-Semitism. We became very, very good at being not just people of the book, but people who dodged political issues. And the handlers, the people behind the scenes, we were very good at waving our fingers ethically at others because we had no power. We didn't have any kind of dilemmas or responsibilities. And the new Zionism today, where we have a state, is a Zionism of responsibility, a Zionism where we don't just pre preach ethics, but actually have to live them in a very complicated neighborhood, sometimes with uh, very difficult dilemmas. Uh, a, a dilemma is only real when it's a series of unhappy choices. If it's, you know, if it's good versus bad, you know exactly what to do. And um, this is part of the excitement of the Jewish National Project today. We're no longer just in the air. We're no longer just in the abstract. But we're real. Israel uh, is real. And we have a chance to take all our beautiful thoughts, implement them in a complicated situation, and then hopefully be a model to others, not in a condescending way, but in a thoughtful, thought-provoking way where 
one democracy comes up with one formula for survival. Another democracy comes up for another, with another formula for survival. And we learn from one another and we make uh, each one of us the better by learning from one another and working together. And uh, we can say Zionism is irrelevant, but the fact is, is that even as we talk, one of probably the longest running controversies that I've seen in Israel in a long time is this nation state bill, which really goes to the heart of what kind of state do we as Jews, uh, because actually it's not just an Israeli question, this thing anymore, uh, you know, want. And, and although I kind of started off my question, I think implying that we had an assault from the left on the Zionist idea, I think there's a lot of people, strong Zionists, uh, even people who you would consider to be on the political right, who who sometimes are putting out some of the the papers that there's also like a religious uh, assault on on Zionism, the the democratic aspect. Uh, what would be your comment on that? Inherent in Zionism's DNA, and I would argue inherent in Judaism's DNA, are two strands. One, a peoplehood strand a strand of particularism, a strand of identity, a strand rooted in our particular national story. But there's another strand, which is indeed about idealism and human rights and democracy. Democracy isn't always opposed to Judaism. It actually comes from the Bible itself. And I am very critical of people on the left who throw around words like racism and apartheid. And here in South Africa, we should be particularly sensitive to that. Uh, Inaccurately, insultingly saying that this law, and I, I just say, just read the law, read the darn law, um, read every Israeli law. You find me a line which defines people based on race. You define, you find a, a law that identifies people by skin color in that abhorrent way that was done in South Africa. You won't find it. And so I'm very critical of the hysterical apocalyptic language on the left, but indeed I'm also very critical of the failure of the right and particularly this right wing, right leaning coalition in Israel to understand that when you're doing a basic law, you have a responsibility when 20% of your population is not Jewish to reaffirm the Jewishness of your state, but also reaffirm the centrality of equality in the state. And the basic law would have looked very, very different if they had just added a sentence or two from the Declaration of Independence. If they just added another sentence or two from the two previous basic laws. In law, as a judge, you'll have to read the latest nation-state bill in context with the Declaration of Independence in context with the other two basic laws. And I think you'll see that that dance that I'm talking about between our Jewish side and our democratic side continues. But to just read the basic law as it now stands, the new basic law, again, what you see is we have a Jewish state, we have a Jewish flag, we have a Jewish national anthem. That's all legitimate. And somehow when we assert that, when Jews assert that, that's considered to be racist. And that's an issue uh, for the left. But the right failed to reassure the right failed to give that symbolic outstretch to the Jews' population, to Israeli Arabs, and that's uh, a black mark on Benjamin Netanyahu's legacy. But I also think that perhaps we need to get over the idea that Israel's ever going to be a purely liberal capitalist state a la an America in the Middle East. Uh, I think that the formulation of Jewish and democratic probably militates against an extreme in, in, in that form. You know, there's a, a bizarre dynamic between uh, American Jews and, and, and Israel. American Jews looking inward, especially these days, can be very, very critical of their democracy. But when they look outward, especially toward Israel, American Jewish liberals often build up their democracy as if it was perfect, as if there were no dilemmas. And indeed, they're two different models. 
American democracy, Canadian democracy, is more built on what we call civic nationalism. E pluribus unum, one out of many, coming from many different uh, communities. But even there, I don't play the game when I'm in America on December 25th and somebody says to me, happy holiday. It's not Hanukkah. It's Christmas, and I say Merry Christmas back. So even in America, which is more on the spectrum of being a civic form of nationalism, there still is a strong Christian influence, which I respect, because the majority culture has the right to express its cultural affirmations, even while defending minority rights. Mm -hmm. In Israel, it's a different model. It's much more of a European model. It's a model that's followed by many more countries in the world of a kind of ethnic-based nationalism. And there, you do have the right and responsibility to express your ethnic background, your particularist background, but you also, in a democracy, have a responsibility to protect minorities, to respect minorities, and that's been done in Israel, and that's always being done in Israel, and to reassure minorities, which three weeks ago wasn't being done, and should have been done. But I should also emphasize that with all the yelling and screaming, the yelling and screaming itself shows how vital Israeli democracy is. No Israeli Arabs or Druze have been arrested for their protests, um, even for waving Palestinian flags. The conversation continues. And one of the great things about Israel is that at the end of the day, democracy wills out. That you look at us not always getting it right, not always getting it in a linear uh, straight line, but balancing things out, stumbling ahead. Compare Israel in the 1950s to Israeli, Israel in 2018. Israel in the 1970s, Israel 2018. Israel 1990s, 2018. You see the trend lines going democracy. Trend, line, trend lines going towards uh, a true fulfillment of the Zionist dream, which is Jewish and democratic. So I'm not giving up. Not yet. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting because actually a lot of commentators on the right say that there's this kind of perception that Israel in the 50s was a great egalitarian country and it was perfect. But kind of as that history is being unearthed and dug through a little bit, you do you, you forget it was a socialist state, uh, you know, where you, if you were a Mizrahi or you were a right winger, you couldn't get a job in the government because of Ben-Gurion. And, and in some ways, uh, as as even though there is such a discussion around democracy in Israel today and how does it work, it, it actually has opened up in, in many other respects. Absolutely. Look, first of all, let's remember the miraculous nature of Israeli democracy. Most of the founders of the state, most of the early citizens of the state grew up in non-democratic cultures, except for their Jewish culture, and created a democracy. And indeed, in the 1950s, if you were a Mizrahi, Svartik, you were stripped of your identity. If you dared to be capitalist, you were often crushed economically because you didn't agree with Ben-Gurion politically. And if you're an Israeli Arab, until 1966, there was a military regime in place. So on almost any indicator, even let's talk about religion and state. In the 1970s, you couldn't get a cup of coffee in downtown Jerusalem on Friday night. Today, with all the yelling and screaming, you can go to a movie, you can go to a club, you can go to a restaurant, you can go to a bar, you can get a cup of coffee, you can smoke a cigarette. Some people might say that's not progress. Some people will say there is progress, but it's certainly a change. And so the needle has moved in Israeli democracy. Does that mean it's perfect? Of course not. Does it mean that we don't have to be absolutely vigilant because every lapse is important? Absolutely. But we also don't define Israel by its lapses. We define it by its resilience. Absolutely. We're talking to Professor Gil Troy uh, today on the new Blue Review. We'll be back just after the break. 
FM. Stay relevant and up to date. Keep you informed. This is 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. You're listening to the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. Welcome back to the show. We're talking to Gil Troy today uh, about a variety of topics, Jewish, Israel, uh, diaspora, and it is a fascinating uh, discussion for sure. Gil, I wanted to ask you something else, kind of tracking back to where we started the conversation on the left and the diaspora. The idea of Zionism and, and, and thinking through its defenders and its thought thinkers, if you like. The campuses have become the ground zero of, of the assault on Zionism, the assault on the Jewish people in many respects, certainly the assault on Jewish students. How important do you think they are uh, in this fight in terms of, of where this is going? I think campuses are very important, but not as important as we believe them to be. And here's the nuance. On the one hand, there is indeed this shift. There is indeed this move toward postmodernism. There is indeed this move toward saying that the core values with which we raise our kids, that nationalism is good and religion is good, um, don't work on campus. You learn on campus that nationalism is for boobs and religion is for idiots. And I say both nationalism and religion are neutral tools. They can be used for good and they can be used for bad. So there is a kind of intellectual, ideological assault going on, which does affect Jews, American Jews, uh, British Jews, South African Jews in particular, because we tend to be very achievement-oriented and we tend to worship the campuses. But on the other hand, we have to be very careful not to define Israel standing by the elites, not to define Israel standing by the shrillest campuses, not to define Israel standing by the haters. And if we go to the American example, for example, 73% of Americans still support the state of Israel. After all the media bashing, after all the headlines, after all the campuses, 73% of Americans support Israel. And that's because they see the connection to sister democracies, not twins, but sisters working together, uh, living together, fighting together, shared values, shared visions, and these days shared challenges. So I I worry, I spend a lot of time fighting delegitimization on campus, but it's more important that we actually have a re-legitimization. And part of this whole move that I'm making of trying to encourage people to host Zionist salons, part of the whole move I'm making in trying to encourage people, frankly, to read my book, The Zionist Ideas, is to simply, and I, I should tell you that people feel relieved when I give them a pathway to talk about Israel without necessarily talking about BB or BDS or the Palestinians, people are relieved. Because they don't just want to talk about that. What they want to talk about is, what does Israel mean to me? They want to talk about, where does my life fit into this project? They want to talk about, how do I find meaning? I think we sell our students short, our kids short, and ourselves short when we only allow the conversation about Israel to be about headaches and challenges and tensions. Well, there is some sense in where groups like If Not Now and and others, where their religion has become the occupation, right? They're no... Uh, say they're not Zionists or, or, or start putting labels on people. But there is a sense in which uh, that challenge that we have with dealing with the Palestinians in whatever way you think is the correct way to deal with them has become the key focus of the entire conversation and and crowds out a, 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 a two millennia's worth of identity building and thinking and, and, and discussion. I, I call this the occupation preoccupation. That uh, And indeed it was... Yasser Arafat's great conceit. Yasser Arafat wanted every conversation about Israel to be about him and his people. And every time we allow that 
to happen. And it's a tick on the right as well as the left. Because the right, and often I'm sorry to say the Jewish establishment, finds, hey, how do I get the blood going? By finding some random marginal attack on Israel and making it the centerpiece of my fundraising effort. So we both, right and left, need a chill pill. We both, right and left, need to get out of what I also call, there was Stockholm Syndrome, where you felt captive, but held captive by your kidnapper. So today I'm calling it Stalked Homeland Syndrome, where we're so addicted to the fight over Israel that we don't breathe and we don't celebrate and we don't toast and we don't see Israel in context. And indeed, we're talking about a a millennia-long conversation about identity. We're talking about a 70-year conversation about how do we make this state work with all its challenges. And we're talking about an over-century-long conversation about what does Zionism mean to me living right here in Johannesburg, right here in Cape Town, right here in New York, right here in Montreal, and right here in Jerusalem. How do we reinvigorate that conversation and how do we make it not just about the Zionist idea if you don't agree with me you're not a Zionist you're not a good person but the Zionist ideas from left to right religious non-religious young and old secular Israeli religious uh, Mizrahi in, in, in Cape Town Johannesburg working together thinking together learning together and yet certainly it has to be a concern for in this case, the American establishment. I mean, the elites that come out of the colleges, uh, they rule the coasts, they run the media, they're in, they're in government very often, right? And these are the people who have to vote for the appropriation bills that fund the Iron Dome and all these sorts of things. And there is a, demo, a demographic catastrophe happening in America from what, what I've read. And surely that has to be a concern, first of all, from – the non-Jews who, who have to who we need to support Israel in America because it's important, uh, and Jewish states in general have relied in some respect on the empire of the day to keep around, but also on the Jewish community maintaining its identity in America. When you have seventy percent intermarriage in the non-Orthodox community in America, and you have, and I really started feeling it this summer, the conversation shifting from once upon a time we said intermarriage was a problem, then we said no, no, it's an opportunity. And now we saw with the famous novelist uh, Michael Chabon. Ghetto of two. <laughs> ghetto of two. So now <laughs> intermarriage is a good and in marriage is bad. So we're really seeing a shift. Now, obviously, that's not happening throughout the community, but it's, it's a problem. I, say, I always say, how do you create a community with no boundaries, with no red lines? By definition, a community has definition. And so you're right. And, and, and your connection is, is absolutely correct. You start with the Israel problem, and you end with the identity problem. Similarly, like in a mathematical equation, the transitive property works, you start with the identity problem, and you end with the Israel problem. The studies show very, very clearly, the more connected you are to your Judaism, the more of a Jewish patriot you are, the more you're connected to the Jewish people, the more connected you are to Israel. And, and then the other way it works is that Israel today is the great identity builder, the great identity enhancer, the great inspirer, That's the whole insight behind birthright, which is, I don't care if you're going to live in Israel, but come visit Israel. Come taste Israel, even just for 10 days, and it's going to be transformational. And what are the two words that most young Jews say when they come to see Israel? They go, awesome! And they see that this country reflects a different kind of Judaism than the often stale, pale, sterile cathedral version of Judaism they get when they go three times a year to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and are so traumatized it takes them a whole year to rile up the courage to come back 
And that negative cycle is changed when you come to Israel and you see a multidimensional Judaism, a three-dimensional Judaism, a vital Judaism, a sexy Jerusalem, a cultural Judaism, a historical Judaism. And that's the real Jewish conversation. And that's the real Zionist conversation we need to have. I want to spend one more moment on the campuses. And we speak a lot about students uh, and what their role is to play. But my sense is is that the, the, the segment that hasn't quite woken up or is maybe only beginning to wake up is the faculty hmm. and the Jewish faculty in particular. And do you think that they've been a bit remiss in doing their jobs as knowledge producers and uh, people are supposed to hold knowledge to account? I call this the silence of the tenured lambs. <laughs> that the, and it's particularly disturbing among my fellow historians, my fellow, my fellow humanists. These are the people who should stand up for truth. And not even truth, but at least for complexity. You know, academics could make anything complicated. We Americans are obsessed with Starbucks, right? So you go to Starbucks. An academic owner of Starbucks would write 32 different papers about the economics of Starbucks. How do you push a 32-cent cup of coffee for $3.50? What's the history of the coffee bean? What's the anthropology of sitting there and and, and drinking it and feeling so good about the, the Starbucks name brand? And on and on and on. And yet when it comes to Israel, simplistic slogans. That doesn't pass the anti-Semitic smell test. When you go against your core character and start acting in a different way to, to demonize the Jew, we call that Jewish bigotry, anti-Jewish bigotry. We call that anti-Semitism. So, indeed, the campuses need to be places where, and I will say, you know, if I, sp- if I speak and all of a sudden you say, I see the light, then I'm, I'm worried because that's not going to hold. I want you to say, I see the gray. Just acknowledge the complexity. Acknowledge the messiness. Then we can have a conversation. And that's what's so painful. So, indeed, we've let the faculty go off into their postmodernist ghetto. And it's a ghetto because they're not open to thought. We've let the faculty go off into uh, giving syllabi, which are very one-sided. And I call this, I don't want to get into fights over academic freedom. Because I know I have the academic freedom to defend Israel. And it's a very unpopular position on campus. So I don't want to mess with that. I want to talk about what I call academic malpractice. There's medical malpractice, there's legal malpractice. Academic malpractice is me walking into my classroom and doing two things. One, hijacking that podium to push my political agenda. And two, not allowing students to speak their minds, to think critically, and to be presented with the multidimensionality and messiness and complexity of any given problem, let alone uh, the Middle Eastern problem. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go off the Israel topic slightly I mean, you, you're not only a, a, a Zionist writer you, you, you have a background in American history uh, and although they do kind of intersect your book on, on Patrick Moynihan uh, and uh, uh, the UN and, and, and the racism he's a very interesting character and I want to ask you about it right? you, you, you write about a guy who in American terms today we would call a liberal maybe or maybe even a progressive right he be- as interested in race relations he's interested in uh, certain kinds of entitlements in America, all of these sorts of things that you would associate with the Democratic Party. But at the same time, in your book, he, he, he sounds like Nikki Haley, right? That, that's, that's, that's the sense you get. And I'm interested in, do you believe that America today can produce a, a, a Patrick Moynihan? Mm. Uh, is there such a thing left uh, in, in America today? So, indeed, uh, guilty as charged. When I wrote my book, Moynihan's Moment, about Daniel Patrick Moynihan's leadership in the fight against Zionism as racism. Um, He was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations in 1975 when the General Assembly passed that horrific resolution. I purposely was looking for a liberal. I purposely was looking for 
Ananju. I purposely was looking for somebody with impeccable credentials on the social, what we call the social justice issue. And indeed, he fought Ronald Reagan tooth and nail over the budgetary wars in the 1980s. He fought George H.W. Bush tooth and nail as a liberal Democrat. But they could all work together. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, in trying to wipe out this horrific resolution, which libeled one democracy, one country uh, in the United Nations. And um, the question I was asked most frequently when that book came out was, who's the Daniel Patrick, Daniel Patrick Moynihan of today? And my answer was I would point at the audience and say, you have to be. So indeed, it's worrisome that we have a long list of Republicans who could potentially be Daniel Patrick Moynihan's, uh, but not a very long list of Democrats. I don't want support for Israel to become a polarized political issue. I want it to be a bipartisan issue, not only for Israel's sake, but for America's sake. A healthy democracy needs some issues on which left and right can agree. And so part of the call in my book was to find a new generation of progressives who see Israel's flaws, but also see Israel's strengths, who see Israel's challenges, but also see Israel's democratic resilience, and who see that Israel can be a model not just for Americans, but actually for Palestinians, for Muslims, because Muslims aren't going to buy into an American-style democracy which takes religion and nationalism and particularism out of the public square. They're actually more likely to buy into an Israeli form of democracy, which, as we were speaking about earlier, mixes nationalism and religion and democracy. And that's something that's missing from the conversation because it's so polarized. But if you speak to American conservatives who are on the Israel issue, they say, look, bipartisanship is nice. But at the end of the day, it's become a tool to dilute down mm. things to such an extent that we can only get to the bare minimum and we can never push the conversation forward. And therefore, we can never solve some of the problems. I don't like President Trump, but I do think that some of the policies that have come out of his White House have started to address some of the pillars that are creating the conflict in the first place, the Jerusalem issue, UNRWA, these sorts of things that you could never conceivably see under the current Democratic Party. This is one of the things that makes me crazy about this moment. You know, the great New York mayor, Ed Koch, said, if you agree with me on nine of 12 things, please vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 of 12 things, please see a psychiatrist. This notion that I have to agree with every single thing Donald Trump said, or disagree with every single thing Donald Trump said, is truly insane. So how is it the Democrats, who going back to the 1970s, going back to Jimmy Carter and George McGovern from the far left of the Democratic Party, supported a plank in the Democratic platform saying Israel, like every other country, should have the right to choose its capital, and so there should be an American embassy in Jerusalem. And as soon as Donald Trump makes that move, a heroic move, I can say that, while criticizing other aspects of Donald Trump, he makes that move. No, it's not acceptable. And so, yeah, I want to be able to sift. I want to be able to say I can disagree with Donald Trump in his mismanagement of America's civic culture. I can disagree with Donald Trump in the corrupt boobs he has around him. I can disagree with Donald Trump in terms of the chaos he generates in the White House and beyond. I can disagree with Donald Trump on so many issues. But I can say thank you, Donald Trump, for finally moving the embassy for breaking through the stalemate. Thank you, Donald Trump, for putting the Iran deal, that flawed deal, on hold. Thank you, Donald Trump, for at least raising questions about how we 
interact with Israel and, frankly, changing the tone from Barack Obama's administration. Even as I can say positive things about Barack Obama's administration, I can criticize Barack Obama's tone when it came to Israel. I don't call him anti-Israel, but I didn't like his tone. That's legitimate. That's logical. That there's never going to be a perfect mix. Yeah, absolutely. It is uh, uh, very, very interesting to to think about that. I, I'd also like to ask about the other side of the equation. You are expert in history in, in some parts on the Clintons, right? And uh, obviously Hillary is remarkably still a big part of the discussion in America. But do you think that what Hillary represented in the Democratic Party as a um, perhaps more right-wing version of Barack Obama – because um, Barack was also already seen as a, a sort of a left-wing tradition in the, in, the, in the thing, but he's now seen as the as 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 the right wing of the party, and Bernie is the is is the left. Do you think that Hillary Clinton's Democratic Party can survive? This is a very important question, and we'll have some better sense of it uh, after November, because I think what's going on right now in the Democratic Party is indeed a civil war, a civil war between. The Clintonites, who were centrist, but that center is now perceived indeed, as you say, as the right, and the Sandernistas. And uh, the Sandernistas are bringing back words like socialism into the mainstream without acknowledging the historical failure of socialism to be implemented on any form of grand scale without overriding basic democratic rights, basic human rights, basic civil liberties. It worked best on a kibbutz, but on a very small scale in a society of deprivation, not a society of plenty. And they haven't, they're so busy with a kind of romantic nostalgia and an anti-Trumpianism, which is boosting the socialism, that they haven't really done a, a good historical accounting. So you can say, uh, you can see I clearly have a certain bias for the Clinton wing of the party. Um, my sense of the American mainstream is that most Americans still remain capitalist. Most Americans still want a balance, and they're turned off by all the shrill politics of the far right and the far left. Uh, but we'll have to see how the dynamics work in the Democratic Party. Um, and it's interesting from the wave of Democratic primaries that we've seen and the different candidates you're getting two very different readings because you're seeing some very strong candidates from the far left, from the identity politics wing of the party, from the Sandernista wing, as I'm calling it. But you're also seeing war heroes. You're seeing patriots. You're seeing people from more the Clinton wing who are saying, look, I can criticize Donald Trump, but that doesn't mean I want to go to the far left. And the Democratic Party has to be a convener for many Americans, not just extreme Americans. I want to come back to that and also the fact that this seems to be happening on the right as well, you know, that the, uh, the Roy Moores of the world, reprehensible characters who are, you know, almost getting elected into, into the Republican uh, wing. And in some respects, I think that the, the, the moderates – in fact, let me ask a question. It's almost as if the never-Trumper conservatives uh, that are in, in the classic conservatives in the Republican Party and the, the, the more right-wing Democrats probably have more in common – with one another than they do with their respective wings, the alt-right and the Republicans and the Sandinistas, as you call them, and the, or the progressives in, in the Democratic Party. You know, in uh, 2008, I came out with a book called Why Moderates Make the Best Presidents. And I was on a radio show with uh, someone from Texas. And he said, moderates, he said, aren't those those people with two yellow streaks down their back 
who get run over by trucks coming from the right and run over by trucks coming from the left. And uh, it's not easy being a moderate in the world these days. I actually call for what I call muscular moderation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of marshmallow moderates. Marshmallow moderates say, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right too. Muscular moderates say, no, I have core principles. Like the Never Trumpers in the Republican Party, I have my red lines. And even if you give me a tax reform that I've been lobbying for and that, frankly, Barack Obama approved much of uh, before it became the Trump tax bill, uh, I won't support you because your politics, your tone, your morality is reprehensible to me. That's a thoughtful position. And so in the kind of crazy American mix today, we're, we're seeing two things. We're seeing um, an overlap, as you point out, between some moderate Democrats and some moderate Republicans. We're also seeing, and this is really painful to say, that the insanity of the right feeds the insanity of the left, which feeds the insanity of the right. And so Trumpianism, which is a politics by insult, a politics by demonization, a politics by exaggeration, is not just the province of the right. It's, you know, Trump is like the classic schoolyard bully who brings out the worst in every one of us. And so we're seeing a bullying on the left as much as on the right. And we see a dance where each one whips each other into the frenzy, but actually, in many ways, tactically looks surprisingly and depressingly similar. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, uh, and this is a new Blue Review. And speaking to Gil Troy, we'll be back just after the break. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 Chai FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. We were talking today to Professor Gil Troy about all sorts of stuff uh, Americanism, Israelism, Jewishism. Uh, fascinating, fascinating conversation. Uh, Gil, I want to ask you something about the actual campaigning of American elections at the moment, because that's something else that you've written a lot about. And there is a sense in which uh, some people might argue that the system itself is a little bit broken from the perspective of campaign finance, where unlimited money can you know, can buy whatever you want, uh, issues around gerrymandering within the system, people you know voting districts and voting different people out so that they you know that's a, you can or can't be represented by your district. Uh, other issues uh, around how long the election cycle goes on for, because the primaries go on for 18 months before the election, which is 18 months. There's no governing actually getting done. Is there a sense in which the entire democratic edifice uh, is not really functioning optimally to elect good people to positions? I wrote my dissertation about presidential campaigning, and it was back in the 1980s, and everybody's saying, oh, this is the worst campaign ever. And I look back to the 1970s, and I found quotations from people saying, ah, this is the worst campaign ever. So I'm back to the 1920s, and they said, this is the worst campaign ever. And we went back to the 1820s and the 1770s, and I discovered actually that inherent in America's DNA is this conflict. Look at the president. All that we put on the president. We want the president to be both the king or queen and the prime minister. We want the president to be both the head of state and the head of government, the symbolic ruler who transcends politics, and the getting, getting things doneer, who is really in, mired in the ugliness of politics. So in some ways, while I certainly see many of the issues you raise in terms of campaign finance law, in terms of uh, the media, in terms of the shrillness, uh, I, I see two things. One is this ongoing dance in America, this, this ambivalence about campaigning, about politics, about our presidency. And secondly... The other thing you see is that politics reflects our culture. 
And we've had moments where we've had high-minded, inspiring political campaigns. We've had moments where we've had a high-minded, inspiring political culture. Unfortunately, today, we are in a cultural low. We're at a low where the bullying on Twitter from the president on down and from the, 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 the trollers on up um, has become so aggressive and so vile and so intense that it's no f- surprise that it spilo- spills over into our politics. So I do worry. Um, I do think that there are certain things we could try to do to fix it. But fundamentally, the biggest fix has to be in going to uh, a deeper conversation about how do we manage this technology or all these different technologies that have made us addicted to the iPhone and the iPad and the, and the me, 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 and the my, 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 and the more, 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 and the now, now, now. And you're evil if you disagree with me. Not you might be wrong of nine of 12 things, but you can find some things to agree. And we can change the tone of politics and then we'll see a difference. But the greater fear is that at the end of the day, democracy depends on trust. Democracy depends on legitimacy. And when 17% of Americans don't, or only 17% of Americans have faith in Congress, 12% in the press, 5% in the, in the presidency as an institution, we've got a crisis of democratic legitimacy that transcends elections. So yes, we need to f- make certain fixes in elections, but more than that, we need a bigger political, cultural reconstruction, if not revolution. And that kind of affects the Zionist conversation as well. I mean, we can, we're very capable in our own communities of being quite shrill, uh, as Jews. But I also feel like it, it's sort of become more difficult to, to make, uh, talks and, uh, discussions around Jews in, in the public sphere, you know, with the boycotts and the protests. And I, I, as someone who writes books about Zionism, for example, I mean, is that something you've run into, uh, trying to publish your book? Maybe the institutional groups uh, getting in your way, that sort of thing. First of all, that book that you so kindly mentioned, Moynihan's Moment, uh, was rejected by, I think, nine publishers uh, before I was able to find a publisher. And in looking at it, it was because of one letter, uh, Z, or you know that one word, Zionism, in the title. Publishers didn't want to touch a book that was pro-Zionist. They didn't want to touch a book that was that might run into static and uh so i i certainly have uh, run into that and I, and I saw that we really need to kind of we need a zionist bookshelf we need more books explaining who we are what we are what it's all about uh and and as i suggested earlier with my push for zionist salons and my new book the zionist ideas i find people are relieved when i give them a framework for getting out of the maw for getting out of the headache and um and indeed, I always say, shame on them. Shame on the delegitimizers. Shame on the demonizers. Shame on the haters who make us feel so badly. But also shame on us. Shame on us for internalizing it. Shame on us for demonizing one another. Shame on us for modeling and mimicking that behavior. I love to reach out to my friends on the far right and the far left. I have my red lines. But I also have what I call my blue and white lines. My blue and white lines are where we agree. And uh, if I could just give a, a short story, in the United States, there's a, a, a left-wing group called J Street. When first J Street came on, uh, J Street U, the university branch, everybody said, oh, we've got to boycott them. And I had an opportunity to speak to them. And so what I did was they were coming to Israel, and I had what I called the Marzipan Summit. 
marzipan is this um, bakery in, in the shuk yeah. that, um, that has these rugelach, these gooey, chocolatey rugelach that would survive nuclear war. And I made three moves. One, I m- invited them to my home. Messages your students. We're, we, we talk together. Second, I went to the shuk, bought the marzipan. Best way to a university student's heart, through his or her stomach. And third, I gave them my watch, and I said, we have an hour together. Give me half an hour, and you have half an hour. The first half hour, let's have a Zionist salon. Let's study some Zionist texts. Let's look at nationalism as a neutral, something that can be good and something that can be bad. And about midway through, one of them said, you know, I'm from the progressive world. I've always been for Israel, but I've never been able to articulate why we need a Jewish state. And then the second half, I said, okay, now it's your turn. You ask me any questions you want, because here's a chance where we can have a safe space, to use a, uh, a trendy f- phrase, and learn together. The questions were calmer, more civilized. We had learned two things. One, that we agree on much more than we disagree. And two, that we can have a civil conversation. And that's what we're failing to do in the Jewish world. We need more marzipan summits. We need more outreach. We need more of a conversation where we go back to basics. Let's start a Zionist conversation on who we are as a people. What does that mean that we're a people? Who we are with rights to a particular homeland doesn't preclude other countries or other nations having rights to that homeland. And what does it mean to establish a state on that homeland? Then we can get to the boundaries and borders and BBs and bills. But first, let's talk about the fundamentals. So I want to ask also about that that conversation in terms of the Muslim community. And I don't know if you were involved, but the institute that you've worked with, the Shalom Hartman Institute, had a very controversial program where they invited Muslim academics, high-profile people to come to Israel and and engage with with. Jews and, and Israelis um, on this. And uh, my sense was from some of them that, that, that there was a certain level of success, that they came away with a different perspective. But at the same time, again, in the American elections, you see this new crop of, of young, strong Muslim feminists, activists coming up. And, and they understand the power structure in America uh, and that, that at the moment, you know, strong anti-Zionist views are, are not going to be tolerated in the political sphere. But you get the sense that they're not completely comfortable with this conversation. And I'm just interested in your views about, you know, how do we have a more productive conversation with our Muslim brothers and sisters? Indeed, the program is called uh, MLI, the Muslim Leadership Institute, and uh, from the Shalom Hartman Institute, and it continues. And it has been very successful in creating a conversation. It was very interesting was when they first started, I was at one of the first meetings, the leaders of the Muslim community said, don't be politically correct with us. We're not coming here to tell, to hear from you how right we are. We want to learn from you your Zionist story. We want to learn from you where we can agree, but also where we can disagree with. And they also said we want to learn from you how to be an effective community. It was a very interesting uh, conversation. It breaks my heart on the American campus, on the Canadian campus. I assume it's the same thing on the South African com- campus. I see two groups of weirdos. I'm putting weirdos in quotation marks. One, these religious Jewish kids Working, walking around in these highly secular, anti-nationalist places with kippot, dressed sneistic. And then I see a, distant, a second group of weirdos, Muslims. And I wish the Orthodox weirdos and the Muslim weirdos could talk about what's it like to be a weirdo in this hyper-universalistic secular environment. But instead, we're so busy being pitted against one another with the Palestinian issue that we can't learn to work together, learn together, and again say, okay, I agree with some issues, I disagree with others. So, indeed, we need to learn how to speak to our Muslim brothers and sisters. We, learn, we need to see where we agree, and we need to learn how to disagree with civility, 
with substance and with thought. That's the Zionist idea and the Zionist ideas. Gilchrist, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. People want to get hold of your books. Where can they find them? They can go on Amazon. They can, if they're in Jerusalem, go to Pomerantz Books. And they can go on my website, www.zionistideas.com, not only to buy the books, but also to download these Zionist salons. And Sukkot is a perfect opportunity, whether you have a sukkah or not, to invite 10, 15 Jewish friends. Have a conversation about what does Israel mean to me? How can we dream together? How can we learn together? How can we build together a different tone, a different conversation? Amazing. Professor Gilchroy, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Thank you, and thanks for the great work you're doing. Enjoy the rest of your trip. That brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you did enjoy it. Thank you, Vusi, for doing our sound today, Mandy, for doing the production, and I'll chat to you again next week.